Book six, chapters six to eight of ten books on architecture. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Frederick Carlson. Ten books on architecture by Vitruvius. Translated by Morris Hickey Morgan. Chapter six, the farmhouse. One, in the first place, inspect the country from the point of view of health, in accordance with what is written in my first book on the building of cities, and let your farmhouses be situated accordingly. Their dimensions should depend upon the size of the farm and the amount of produce. Their courtyards and the dimensions thereof should be determined by the number of cattle and the number of yokes of oxen that will need to be kept therein. Let the kitchen be placed on the warmest side of the courtyard, with the stalls for the oxen adjoining, and their cribs facing the kitchen fire in the eastern quarter of the sky, for the reason that oxen facing the light and the fire do not get rough-coated. Even peasants, wholly without knowledge of the quarters of the sky, believe that oxen ought to face only in the direction of the sunrise. 2. Their stalls ought to be not less than 10 nor more than 15 feet wide, and long enough to allow not less than 7 feet for each yoke. Bathrooms, also, should adjoin the kitchen, for in this situation it will not take long to get ready a bath in the country. Let the pressing-room, also, be next to the kitchen, for in this situation it will be easy to deal with the fruit of the olive. Adjoining it should be the wine-room, with its windows lighted from the north. In a room with windows on any other quarters so that the sun can heat it, the heat will get into the wine and make it weak. 3. The oil-room must be situated so as to get its light from the south and from warm quarters, for oil ought not to be chilled, but should be kept thin by gentle heat. In dimensions, all rooms should be built to accommodate the crop and the proper number of jars, each of which, holding about 120 gallons, must take up a space four feet in diameter. The pressing room itself, if the pressure is exerted by means of levers and a beam, and not worked by turning screws, should be not less than 40 feet long, which will give the lever man a convenient amount of space. It should be not less than 16 feet wide which will give the men who are at work plenty of free space to do the turning conveniently. If two presses are required in the place, allow twenty-four feet for the width. 4. Folds for sheep and goats must be made large enough to allow each animal a space of not less than four and a half, nor more than six feet. Rooms for grain should be set in an elevated position and with a northern or northeastern exposure. Thus the grain will not be able to heat quickly, but being cooled by the wind keeps a long time. Other exposures produce the corn weevil and the other little creatures that are wont to spoil the grain. To the stable should be assigned the very warmest place in the farmhouse, provided that it is not exposed to the kitchen fire, for when draught animals are stabled very near a fire their coats get rough. 5. Furthermore, there are advantages in building cribs apart from the kitchen and in the open facing the east, for when the oxen are taking over to them on early winter warnings in clear weather, their coats get sleek as they take their fodder in the sunlight. Barns for grain, hay and spelt, as well as bakeries, should be built apart from the farmhouse, so that farmhouses may be better protected against danger from fire. If something more refined is required in farmhouses, they may be constructed on the principles of symmetry which have been given above in the case of townhouses, provided that there is nothing in such buildings to interfere with their usefulness on a farm. 6. 
We must take care that all buildings are well lighted, but this is obviously an easier matter with those which are on country estates, because there can be no neighbor's wall to interfere, whereas in town high party walls or limited space obstruct the light and make them dark. Hence we must apply the following test in this matter. On the side from which the light should be obtained, let a line be stretched from the top of the wall that seems to obstruct the light to the point at which it ought to be introduced, and if a considerable space of open sky can be seen when one looks up above that line, there will be no obstruction to the light in that situation. 7. But if there are timbers in the way, or lintels, or upper stores, then make the opening higher up and introduce the light in this way and as a general rule we must arrange so as to leave places for windows on all sides on which a clear view of the sky can be had, for this will make our buildings light. Not only in dining rooms and other rooms for general use are windows very necessary, but also in passages, level or inclined, and on stairs, for people carrying burdens too often meet and run against each other in such places. I have now set forth the plans used for buildings in our native country so that they may be clear to builders. Next I shall describe summarily how houses are planned in the Greek fashion, so that those also may be understood. Chapter 7. The Greek House 1. The Greeks, having no use for atriums, do not build them, but make passageways for people entering from the front door not very wide, with stables on one side and doorkeeper's rooms on the other, and shut off by doors at the inner end. This place between the two doors is termed in Greek Thirorion, from it one enters the peristyle. This peristyle has colonnades on three sides, and on the side facing the south it has two antae, a considerable distance apart, carrying an architrave with a recess for the distance one-third less than the space between the antae. This space is called by some writers prostas, by others pastas. 2. Hereabouts, towards the inner side, are the large rooms in which mistresses of the house sit with their wool-spinners. To the right and left of the prostas there are chambers, one of which is called the thalamus, the other the amphithalamus. All round the colonnades are dining rooms for everyday use, chambers and rooms for the slaves. This part of the house is called gynaeconitis. 3. In connection with these there are ampler sets of apartments with more sumptuous peristyles, surrounded by four colonnades of equal height, or else the one which faces the south has higher columns than the others. A peristyle that has one such higher colonnade is called a Rhodian peristyle. Such apartments have fine entrance courts with imposing front doors of their own. The colonnades of the peristyles are decorated with polished stucco in relief and plain, and with coffered ceilings of woodwork. Off the colonnades that face the north they have Sucisian dining rooms and picture galleries, to the east libraries, etc. to the west, and to the south large square rooms of such generous dimensions that four sets of dining couches can easily be arranged in them with plenty of room for serving and for the amusements. 4. Men's dinner parties are held in these large rooms, for it was not the practice according to Greek custom for the mistress of the house to be present. On the contrary, such peristyles are called the men's apartments, since in them the men can stay without interruption from the women. Furthermore, small sets of apartments are built to the right and left, with front doors of their own and suitable dining rooms and chambers, so that guests from abroad need not to be shown into the peristyles, but rather into such guests' apartments. 
for when the greeks became more luxurious and their circumstances more opulent they began to provide dining-rooms chambers and storerooms of provisions for their guests from abroad and on the first day they would invite them to dinner sending them on the next chickens eggs vegetables fruits and other country produce this is why artists called pictures representing the things which were sent to guests senia thus too the heads of families while being entertained abroad had the feeling that they were not away from home since they enjoyed privacy and freedom in such guests apartments five between the two peristyles and the guests apartments are the passageways called mesole because they are situated midway between two courts but our people call them androne's this however is a very strange fact for the term does not fit either the greek or the latin use of it the greek call the large rooms in which men's dinner parties are usually held andronas because women do not go there there are other similar instances as in the case of zystus prothyrum telamonus and some others of the sort as a greek term zystus means a colonnade of large dimensions in which athletes exercise in the winter time but our people apply the term zysta to uncovered walks which the greeks called paradromides again prothyra means in greek the entrance courts before the front doors we however use the term prothyra in the sense of the greek diathyra six again figures in the form of men supporting mutuals or coronae where term telamonus the reason why or wherefore they are so called are not found in any story but the greeks name them atlantis for atlas is described in story as holding up the firmament because through his vigorous intelligence and ingenuity he was the first to cause men to be taught about the causes of the sun and moon and the laws governing the revolutions of all the constellations consequently in recognition of this benefaction painters and sculptors represent him as holding up the firmament and the atlantis his daughters whom we call vergiliae and the greeks pleiades are consecrated in the firmament among the constellations seven all this however i have not set forth for the purpose of changing the usual terminology or language but i have thought it should be explained so that it may be known to scholars i have now explained the usual ways of planning houses both in the italian fashion and according to the practices of the greeks and have described with regard to their symmetry the proportions of the different classes having therefore already written of their beauty and propriety i shall next explain with reference to durability how they may be built to last to a great age without defects chapter eight on foundations and substructures one houses which are set level with the ground will no doubt last to a great age if their foundations are laid in the manner which we have explained in the earlier books with regard to city walls and theatres but if underground rooms and vaults are intended their foundations ought to be thicker than the walls which are to be constructed in the upper parts of the house and the walls piers and columns of the latter should be set perpendicularly over the middle of the foundation walls below so that they may have solid bearing for if the load of the walls or columns rests on the middle of spans they can have no permanent durability Two it will also do no harm to insert posts between lintels and sills where there are piers or anti for where the lintels and beams have received the load of the walls they may sag in the middle and gradually undermine and destroy the walls but when there are posts set up underneath and wedged in there they prevent the beams from settling and injuring such walls three we must also manage to discharge the load of the walls by means of arkings composed of ossuars with joints radiating to the centre.
for when arches with voussoirs are sprung from the ends of beams or from the bearings of lintels in the first place they will discharge the load and the wood will not sag secondly if in course of time the wood becomes at all defective it can easily be replaced without the construction of shoring four likewise in houses where piers are used in the construction when there are arches composed of voussoirs with joints radiating to the centre the outermost piers at these points must be made broader than the others so that they may have the strength to resist when the wedges under the pressure of the load of the walls begin to press along their joints towards the centre and thus to thrust out the abutments hence if the piers at the ends are of larger dimensions, they will hold the voussoirs together and make such works durable. 5. Having taken heed in these matters to see the proper attention is paid to them, we must also be equally careful that all walls are perfectly vertical, and that they do not lean forward anywhere. Particular pains, too, must be taken with substructures, for here an endless amount of harm is usually done by the earth used as filling this cannot always remain of the same weight that it usually has in summer but in winter time it increases in weight and bulk by taking up a great deal of rain-water and then it bursts its enclosing walls and thrusts them out six the following means must be taken to provide against such a defect first let the walls be given a thickness proportionate to the amount of filling secondly build counterforts or buttresses at the same time as the wall on the outer side at distances from each other equivalent to what is to be the height of the substructure and with the thickness of the substructure at the bottom let them run out to a distance corresponding to the thickness that has been determined for the substructure and then gradually diminish in extent so that at the surface their projection is equal to the thickness of the wall of the building seven furthermore inside to meet the mass of earth there should be saw-shaped constructions attached to the wall the single teeth extending from the wall for a distance equivalent to what is to be the height of the substructure and the teeth being constructed with the same thickness as the wall then at the outermost angles take a distance inwards from the inside of the angle equal to the height of the substructure and mark it off on each side from these marks build up a diagonal structure and from the middle of it a second joined on to the angle of the wall with this arrangement the teeth and diagonal structures will not allow the filling to thrust with all its force against the wall but will check and distribute the pressure eight i have now shown how buildings can be constructed without defects and the way to take precautions against the occurrence of them as for replacing tiles roof timbers and rafters we need not to be so particular about them as about the parts just mentioned because they can easily be replaced however defective they may become hence i have shown by what methods the parts which are not considered solid can be rendered durable and how they are constructed nine as for the kind of material to be used this does not depend upon the architect for the reason that all kinds of materials are not found in all places alike as has been shown in the first book besides it depends on the owner whether he desires to build in brick or rubble work or dimension stone consequently the question of approving any work may be considered under three heads that is delicacy of workmanship sumptuousness and design when it appears that a work has been carried out sumptuously the owner will be the person to be praised for the great outlay which he has authorized when delicately the master workman will be approved for his execution but when proportions and symmetry lend it an imposing effect then the glory of it will belong to the architect Ten 
Such results, however, may very well be brought about when he allows himself to take the advice both of workmen and of laymen. In fact, all kinds of men, and not merely architects, can recognize a good piece of work. But between laymen and the latter there is this difference, that the layman cannot tell what it is to be like without seeing it finished, whereas the architect, as soon as he has formed the conception, and before he begins the work, has a definite idea of the beauty, the convenience, and the propriety that will distinguish it. I have now described as clearly as I could what I thought necessary for private houses, and how to build them. In the following book I shall treat of the kinds of polished finish employed to make them elegant and durable without defects to a great age. End of Book 6